Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. When you're out in the world, you have no idea what's coming next. And some of the downside can include being dead, of course, or serving a huge sentence in a really disgusting prison, or, you know, being injured and having no way to get help. So you live with this sense of tension. I'm Vanessa Kirby, and this is True Spies. Mexican Maneuvers, part two, by the dawn's early light. For 40 years, ex-Special Forces turned private military contractors, Nick Brockhausen and Jeff Miller, have offered their services to clients in need of world-class military training and tactics. They even ended up back in a few actual war zones, pulling off daring espionage and intelligence gathering. The tension, the paranoia, and then the relief when it finally goes right and lifts that enormous weight off of you. And it's like, you know, you literally weigh 1% of what you weighed the minute before because it finally came together. I mean, it's, it's an exciting uh, way to go through life. I wouldn't recommend it to most people, but it's pretty exciting. By the late 1990s, they were getting increasingly frequent and desperate calls from some of Mexico's wealthiest families. Kidnapping was going on all the time. You know, it, it became a corporation, a massive corporation, ruled by four or five large cartels and probably another 10 smaller ones that were regional in that. Nick and Jeff were keen to help. They even devised the use of unique chemical tracking technology to go after the gangs responsible once a hostage has been released. Sort of like an invisible paper trail that only they could see. But in many cases, they simply couldn't respond, no matter how desperate the phone call. The cartels had bought almost every police force and politician in Mexico. They had done so by using a phrase first coined by Pablo Escobar himself. Plata o plomo, silver or lead. You have two choices, take the money or a bullet. We wouldn't do a lot of them because we couldn't find a police unit that we could work with. We probably turned down two or three others, mainly because we couldn't link up with a police unit that wasn't already infiltrated by the cartel or by the kidnapping gangs. Eventually, though, a mission came through they were able to take on. The son of one of Mexico's elite families had been snatched at an intersection in broad daylight. The ransom? $4 million. Nick and Jeff hatch an ingenious plan to not only save the kid, but chase down the gang responsible. All with the help of an ex-CIA scientist who let them try out some secretive chemical tracking technology to mark the cash with. Some six months after that rescue mission, they're approached again by the same contact, 
Carlos, the tall Mexican-Lebanese armored car tycoon we met in episode one. Urbane, sophisticated, something like a languid Spanish grandee. But on this phone call, he is anything but calm. A close friend and associate in Leon, a city in central Mexico, is in trouble. His father has been kidnapped. The victim was uh, the patriarch of a family that owned uh, the largest dairy processing plant and operation in Mexico. They have a dairy operation that employs like 1,200 people just in that one location in that. And the old man that had started the industry, he was in the habit of going around and collecting the monies from the individual dairies every week. And he had a bodyguard driver, basically is what he had for security. And he was at one of those creameries when they snatched him. They just walked in the front door. They grabbed the driver out in the parking lot and subdued him, walked in, grabbed the old man, and they were gone. Nick says he'll look into it. But by now he has seen firsthand just how deep the gang's stronghold on the Mexican state was. On the last job in Texcoco, the deputy state attorney general himself was the one counting the ransom money when the assault team busts through the door. If Nick and Jeff are going to get on board, though, the police have to be involved. By the turn of the century, there was a burgeoning market for kidnap insurance, so wealthy families could be reimbursed after paying ransom. But the insurance companies and the government have strict stipulations. If you, working for the family, delivered the ransom to the kidnappers without the police being involved in, in that particular operation, you can be charged as a co-conspirator with the rest of the gang. So that you have to have the police on your side in the thing. The question is, how do you get police that you know you can trust and that aren't going to, you know, that, that aren't uh, stained by, by association with the cartel? So it's kind of a balance wire in that regard. Carlos assures him that the police units involved are clean. Even the state governor was offering his cooperation. But Nick and Jeff aren't into taking chances. And the attorney general recommended their state police counter-kidnapping function to work with me. And then I checked back also with the commandante of the one that I used in Texcoco. And, you know, he also gave them high marks. See, all these little specialized units, they know about each other. They know which ones are trustworthy. They know which ones, who's been naughty and who's been nice, basically. After some further due diligence, Nick agrees to join the mission. The team wants to mark the dollar bills with the same tracking technology as they used in Texcoco. Colorless, odorless, chemically unique and completely undetectable. That is, without the machine that came with it. The problem was that two unknown technical operators came too, and last time, one of them lost his cool. Insulted the police unit at the height of the mission, threatening the whole operation. This time, Nick takes matters into his own hands. After the first time, I actually went back to the inventor of the machine and took a crash course on how to operate the machine. 
fact, I did that just like two weeks prior to getting a notification on this one. I'd come back from that. I spent three days with him. After getting comfortable with operating the detector himself, Nick asks Jeff to come on board. But there's a problem. Jeff is off the grid. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but based on the time it was, I might have been doing a thing down in Guatemala. With his trusted sidekick out, Nick had to improvise, look around for other associates he could depend on. He settled on two guys from way back. One of them, Rick, served in the same elite unit as Nick in Vietnam, before joining him in 1970s Berlin as part of another secretive outfit, Detachment A, a group of 90 Green Berets ready to wreak havoc on Soviet military positions and supplies if the USSR had decided to make the Cold War hot. The good thing about Rick is that he's Menza. He thinks everything out in that. And when the chips are down, that's the guy you want with you because he becomes a one-man assault brigade. The other, Mike, is a former homicide detective Nick and Jeff had trained back in the 80s as part of their work shaping up America's finest. Mike had since earned two Valor Awards for bravery during shootouts. Both were exactly who Nick needed. I needed people I could trust, people that if things got bad, I could count on if things went to a, a shooting portion. The client had arranged a lease of the state governor's private plane, complete with crew. Nick hops aboard and heads to Richmond, Virginia, to collect Mike. Together, they'll pick up the machinery from a facility in New Jersey and rendezvous with Rick in Lyon. As Nick lands in Richmond, he spots that Mike is accompanied on the tarmac by his wife. His wife never liked me, put it that way. No one's wife ever liked Nick. It's just a common failing with the public. As the plane taxis over, Mike's wife sees the huge red lion emblazoned across the Learjet, the symbol of the state of Guanajuato. His wife made the comment to him, I bet it's a magnetic sign. Like I put it on there just for show. A few more disapproving looks later, Mike climbs aboard. They jet off immediately to New Jersey to collect their ace in the hole, the undetectable tagant, and get Mike trained up in how to use it. Like I say, it was not user-friendly. If you didn't know what you were doing, you would miss the nuances of what was happening. You think you're hot and you're right on top of it and you're not. You have to go beyond that. We did a lot of what they call it, hound sniffing. You'd get a false lead, you follow it, realize it's a false lead, come back to the main track and try and pick it up again. As a former homicide detective though, Mike was the man for the job. He needed somebody who was a hunter or someone who has, has hunted people before to interpret what the hell you were looking at on the ground and try and come up with a scenario that fit. With the technology in place, Nick and Mike take off for Leon. After arriving, all three of them head to the client's house, or rather, estate. High walls encircle the compound's several acres. There's a full-sized movie theater and even a shooting range. But there's something even more unexpected waiting for them. In one corner of the compound sits a full-grown lioness, the client's very own pet. He had raised her since she was a cub. 
and she'd been free to roam around. He'd had her declawed because evidently she jumped one of the landscapers and, you know, clawed him up pretty badly before they got her off him. So they had her declawed, but she had not been defanged or anything. Next to the lioness's area is the garage Nick and the team are given to set up. Once inside, they're met with another surprise. The client also was one of Mexico's top amateur racing uh, enthusiasts. He did rally races. In his garage, he had like 15 or 16 race cars in there, plus an old turn of the last century's Rolls Royce with the, the where the chauffeur sat in the front and they were in the back in the garage. Alongside the dairy plant, the family also owns a Ford dealership through which they secure a brand new van for the team to install the tracing technology. Nick then realizes he's going to need another man in his crew. The biggest problem we had, we had to mark all those bills. You know, we didn't have to mark each individual one, but we'd take a stack of bills and we'd mark the end of them. The material came as a, like a stick, like chapstick. And there was also a, a bottle of liquid. And the bottle of liquid was extremely concentrated. The tagant needed to be individually layered onto the $4 million of notes. A laborious task, but also problematic. By rubbing the chapstick, something like a small tube, up against each bill, you are likely to get some of the chemical on you, giving a false positive on the machine. So we couldn't personally be in the room when they were marking the bills because we'd be hot with the material on that. Nick knows that to ensure a reliable read from the machine then, the man he drafts in will have to be the one to both mark the dollar bills and make the ransom drop himself, often the most dangerous part of the mission. I needed somebody that was able to stand the rigors of if something went bad, you know, that we'd be able to come in, he'd be able to hold his own until we got there. The state police unit overseeing the rescue is stalling negotiations with the gang until Nick finds the right man. Eventually, he settles on a recently discharged Special Forces veteran, like himself, only younger. He was a jewel. You know, real smart, good guy, type A personality, very calm. And we'd worked with him before because he was one of the trainers at a huge training program that we did in Mexico and did an excellent job at that. With negotiations back live, the gang lays out its instructions. A man dressed all in white is to drive an equally white van to a specified location to pick up a burner phone. From there, they will direct him to another location to make the drop. And they wanted the bed removed, the back of the pickup removed, so it was just a frame. So they could see if anybody was hiding underneath, etc. With all the demands agreed to, the drop is scheduled for the next day. I think the ransom was three or four million. So that's a lot of money, and it's a, a lot of work just to mark the thing. The guy who was going to deliver it, the fourth member of the team came down. He had to mark all those bills along with one of the police officers. So they sat in that room from, I think, from about 
6 o'clock in the evening until about 11, just marking all the bills and putting them in the bag that they want them delivered in. In the garage, Nick and Rick are making final adjustments to the machine. That is, until they start hearing strange noises outside. And we hear this voice and it's going, Nick, Rick, help. <laughs> As they go outside, they spot Mike and the lioness. He's laying flat on his back and the, the bars on the lion cage are actually three by three steel columns. And there's about maybe six to eight inches between each bar and that. And he had one foot pressed straight legged out, trying to hold himself against one bar. And the other one was stretched between the bars and she had his uh, clog and his foot in her mouth. And she was just laying there. You could see she was playing with him. She'd give him a tug every once in a while and it was taking all his strength to keep from being dragged through the bars and turned into some kind of puree. But Nick and Rick are ex-special forces. Sympathy is not necessarily their strong suit. Rick's always a good guy in a situation like this. Nick had been playing tourists, been taking pictures of everything, and he had the camera in his pocket. He walked up and Rick goes, uh, where's your camera? It's in my pocket, help me, help me, get me out of here. Give me your camera. Why, give me your camera. So he gives him the camera and then he's still straining and sweating and that, and Rick takes probably four or five pictures of him. Eventually, one of the estate staff slaps the lioness around the ear with a roll of lottery tickets. She let go of his foot and we dragged him away from there. And then she went over and rolled over on her back and looked at us like, uh, any of you guys want to try for seconds? With that rescue over, the next day, the real one begins. The marked bills are loaded into the pickup. Nick hands the driver a burner phone of his own and tells him to keep the line open at all times. That way the team can hear his conversation with the gang directly. Before they go mobile, there's some good news. Jeff is back on the grid and making his way down to Leon. I'd been kept apprised of what was going on and showed up to do my normal cover the escape route mode. But there's also another reason why he's there. This is a common practice with us. You know, we give the other guy a debrief on what we're doing, who we're working with, where we're at, etc. So if something goes sideways, the family doesn't have to count on the U.S. State Department to find out what happened to you. You've got a, a lead on what really happened. Because yeah. if you depend on them, in about 10 years' time, you might get a letter from them. With dusk approaching, Nick, Rick and Mike load into the van, ready to trace the ransom. Driving them is a state police officer, the only one who's technically meant to be armed. But we had developed such a rapport with the police unit, he showed up, he was armed, and he had four extra guns, including two submachine guns and two or three pistols that were, says, uh, I'm not allowed to give you these guns, but if something happens and during the emergency you happen to get your hands on them, I'm sure you will be forgiven, was is the way he put it. The white pickup and its white linen-clad driver rolls out of the compound. 
The mission is live. Nick's van falls in with the police convoy some 10 minutes behind. Eventually, the police unit radio in to say their man has collected the burner phone. Immediately, he is told to head out of the city. We could hear the conversation that he was having with them inside the truck. And the police were monitoring that conversation and assisting them in knowing where they were going. When the kidnappers told them, go 13.6 kilometers on this highway, they knew exactly where that point was. The police convoy weaves left and right through Leon's side streets to avoid detection. Before long, they're in the desert. The Comandante calls Nick to say they know who the gang is and the likely drop point. And it was way out off the toll road. And uh, you get to an overpass, you get off, and then go down the, uh, the gully, the arroyo, on foot a couple hundred meters and drop the bag. And that, that was the instructions. Nick's man arrives next to the drop point on an exit ramp. He's ordered out of the pickup to lift up his shirt and pull up his trousers to prove he's unarmed. Then he grabs the bag full of cash and moves towards the arroyo. Darkness envelops the toll road. As soon as Nick's man steps off the asphalt, he disappears along with $4 million. This is the most dangerous part of the mission. You never know what's gonna happen at the drop. I mean, somebody else could just stumble on it and realize that, hey, there's somebody here with a lot of money and just, you know, kill your messenger, take the money, and it's not the gang. Or the gang grabs it, kills your messenger, and tells you that another bandit group did it, it wasn't us. So you're always very, very vigilant at that point, and it's really nerve-wracking for both the law enforcement and for us, because it's our guy, and they, they want to make sure that you know they don't screw it up and somehow get your guy killed as well. 15 minutes go by. Everyone is beginning to wonder what's going on. And then he was instructed, okay, now you can leave, and he was very relieved, and so were we. They didn't kill him. Eventually, he reappears, gets into the pickup, turns back on himself, and heads towards Leon. Back at the compound, Jeff is waiting to debrief him, which turns out to be difficult. Despite only recently leaving one of the most elite fighting forces in the world, the bagman is clearly affected by what he's just experienced. It was his first time, and you find that no matter what the credentials of a person are, you don't know what someone's reaction to the stress is going to be. He was definitely spun up. Yeah. Without a doubt, he was definitely spun up. I don't think he was ready to lose it, but he was on the edge. Back in the convoy, the Comandante radios all units to inform them that the hostage has been released. Nick's team are told to head to the drop site. We got notified by the police that the bag wasn't there anymore. They fire up the machine and follow the trail off the toll road. The signature gets stronger and stronger on the device. They zero in on the drop site and spot the two bags that carried the money. They're empty. Next to them is some discarded packaging. Nick can already tell it's from space blankets, 
a foil-looking material that smothers any signal emitting from whatever it covers. They know all about, you know, trackers, electronic trackers, beacons, and all that sort of stuff. Usually what they would do is they would take the money out of the bag that it came in and put it inside something that had metal foil or in a box that was all metal so that no signal can get out. And then they left with it and they discarded the bag. But this is where the chemical tagant comes into its own. The machine was programmed to inhale through the tubes, take that sample and put it in an oven where there was radioactive material. They had tweaked the fluorocarbon so that you could read it down to parts per billion. Nick knew that no matter how much metal they encased the bills with, the tagant was traceable. We picked up the trail right there. It was hot and we started following the track. There was only one way in and one way out from the drop site. So we just followed it back to the highway and started following it. The police unit measure the tire tracks at the drop point. The vehicle they want is large, a pickup or SUV. A remote surveillance unit says they've spotted two cars that fit the description. And we just went to the turnout point for both of them, and the one that was hot, we knew that was the vehicle that still had the ransom in it. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. After several minutes following the trail, though, there's a problem. The signature starts getting patchy, dropping in and out. The team all look to Nick. He can see what they're thinking. Is the machine failing at the crucial moment? This thing was sensitive to parts per billion. So it would lose a couple of hundred million on its intensity over and then spike back up to real intense. But Nick knows the technology. Whatever the reading is has to be correct. He starts thinking outside the box, using the training that all Green Berets have for unexpected situations. Eventually, 
he figures it out. The guy's a smoker. At that time of year, it was cold outside. What he's doing is he's rolling down the window to let the smoke out because the other guy's complaining or whatever. And that's why we're getting this spotted trail. You know, it was a learning exercise for us. By this point, the team have been cooped up in the van for over 12 hours, tracing every flicker from the machine draped over the desert. You can't stop to eat. You can't stop too long to do bodily functions that you got to stay on it. The atmosphere is getting tense. The squabbling between Rick and the uh, ex-homicide cop went on constantly. You know, I kept looking at that state police officer, and he'd just look at me and roll his eyes. One guy was arguing, well, you're not doing it right. You're not reading it right. Well, how do you know I'm not reading it right? It's like a couple of, like an old married couple between the two of them. They follow the trail ever deeper into the Mexican night. We came to a, a road junction. We took a right and we followed it down probably mile, two miles. And when I say dirt road, it was a dirt road from Arkansas, big holes in it. So we're being jounced around inside there. And, you know, finally we realized that the, the, the thing just stopped. And we got a false lead. The gang have intentionally doubled back on themselves to create two trails. The tension in the van threatens to boil over. Their driver, the state policeman, is starting to have second thoughts about loading the vehicle with weapons. And by that time, I wanted to kill both of them. Well, pretty much everybody wants to kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you, you have no idea the, the stress levels. You can't even imagine the stress level of that sort of situation where everything is riding, you've got a human life on the line, you've got millions of dollars on the line, and everybody is just tensed up, as tense as a human being can be for hour after hour after hour. And um, yeah, people start to um, exhibit strange personality traits that may have been covered up under normal circumstances. Yeah, yeah. The guy I felt the most sorry for was a state cop from the unit that was assigned to drive the van. Nick tries to calm himself down by singing the old Desperado tune, Pancho and Lefty, in Spanish. You know the one. It was either that or try and do square roots. Something to take your mind off what's actually going on. The others collect themselves too as the state policeman doubles back to the highway. They pick the other trail up and follow it down to an intersection. Dawn is rising to the east. The van tops a hill and the machine spikes through the top of the chart. In the distance, they spot a small village. This is it. We hadn't gone into the village, but we were getting really high readings, so we knew that the money was there. Nick radios the Comandante. And I said, I think we're close to the hideout. You might want to move your reaction force up to at least this point. And, you know, and Nate, Roger, we're, we're moving now. But the commander has some news too, both good and bad. The good? They had Mexican military with them as well that had, had come up. So they were basically a convoy of Humvees and, and SUVs. But what the commander says next is not what Nick wants to hear. The bad. They're at least 30 minutes from his position. 
On top of this, one of the team, Brick, has evidently not calmed down from the pressure of the chase. I kept hearing somebody screaming in Spanish, and I thought maybe we'd been discovered by somebody. When I got there, it was Rick. Picture this. He's wearing a $800 designer tracksuit, and uh, now he has at least one of the pistols shoved in his belt line, and he's got his hand on the submachine gun. And he's screaming in Spanish about, I've been in, sitting in here for over a day tracking you. If I have to come down there and get you, we're going to kill everybody in the village and the dogs. Just going on and on. And the, the state police officer was standing there and he's going, uh, aren't we supposed to be clandestine? With help now feeling a long way away, Nick and the team grab the four pistols and two submachine guns from the van and take up defensive positions. But we were in between this cut there was high ground on both sides, and it was good area. If they came out that way and came up to us, we had the kill zone covered. The convoy is still at least 10 minutes away. Oh, God, it was an eternity. And I, I could see them in the distance when they got closer, because the road snaked out through the hills and that. You could you could see the road, and then it would disappear for a couple miles, and then back again. So I, I could see the convoy coming towards us, intermittently as it broke the hills and that. And I'm on the radio with the commandante and said, well, we've been discovered, so you might want to get up here now. Nick's driver, the one state police officer who is at the scene, turns to Nick and asks if his crew were always like this. Before he has a chance to answer, they hear the gang stirring in the village. Right after that, we started seeing lights coming on. By that time, the gang was all alerted, and those that weren't trying to escape decided to, you know, let's let's have a, a Donnybrook here. With that, though, the convoy roars over the hill and into the village. Three military Humvees split left and right, cutting off the escape routes. I mean, it was beautiful to watch because the special police unit was in the front and they encircled the village and set up on the backside of the village very, very quickly before anybody had a chance to really react. Gunfire breaks out. The assault unit exits the convoy, ready to make entry. They came up and uh, we didn't know which house it was in and they didn't want us to go forward any further than we were. The Commandante decides they'll go door to door clearing out Sicarios as they go. Then the order is given. More intense gunfire erupts throughout the village as the assault unit rips through several houses. After a minute or so, Nick can hear that the raid is one-sided. Yeah, there was casualties on the gang side. They dialed several people in. You know, these guys do this for a living. You know, they. I was talking to them. They said they do anywhere from 14 to 15 forced entries a month. That's like one every other day. So they got it down to a science. Nick motions to his team to regroup back at the van. The raid is complete. Once the unit has locked down the area, the commander comes over to Nick. Not all of the ransom money is in the village. Meanwhile, the police have identified the safe house where the hostage was being held. The commander wants them to check it out 
to see if they can pick up the trail of the remaining cash. We were going to that location and we decided to stop at the Gigante to get something to eat. When we pulled into the parking lot, the machine spiked right off the bat. So we knew somebody that had been with the gang and touched the money had been in that parking lot. Nick orders the team to drive around the parking lot so he can monitor when the machine spikes. He thinks it's coming from a Chevrolet Caprice diagonally across from them. And about that time, this guy came out, young, younger man, probably in his late 20s, early 30s, with two women who obviously were his relatives, older ladies and that. They'd been shopping and that. They must have had, you know, five or six bags and that. They stopped at the Capri Classic. He opened the trunk to put the packages back inside. And bingo. Hey, we got a huge spike. By the time the man and his family turn from the trunk, they're confronted with assault rifles. The state police unit has surrounded them in the parking lot. The commander asks Nick to set up the machine at one exit while each car files out. We were able to basically identify who had been in contact with the money or who had been in a vehicle with the money because they were still hot. They had extremely high readings. Not somebody who was standing on the street when the thing went by and he got lightly dusted with the tagging, but these guys were hot, hot. You know, they had a point to start from. We know you were involved. Oh, no, I'm down here visiting my mom. Well, no, you're not, and we know you're not. As the Sicarios are rounded up, Nick remembers what time of year it is. It was Christmas time. They decided to go Christmas shopping with their portion of the loot, and they'd gone home and picked up their mother and their aunt to go Christmas shopping with the portion of ransom money they had. Satisfied that the bills are now accounted for, the Comandante says his goodbyes to Nick and his team. They head back to the compound and link up with Jeff and the bagman, who is finally calmed down from the drop. The next day, Jeff flies back home to LA. Nick stays a few more days and catches up with Carlos, the man who had initiated both their missions. He breaks character from his usual relaxed demeanor to show his gratitude for their efforts. Both hostages have been released without a scratch. Despite the success, though, it is the last mission of its kind that Nick and Jeff do in Mexico. Nick learns a few years later that several of the special assault unit that he so admired are killed in a shootout. The situation in the country deteriorates to a point where it simply becomes too dangerous for them to operate. Mexico was transitioning from individual robbery outfits, you know, uh, bandits, to an organized system of crime, you know, that encompasses everything. Prostitution, you know, kidnapping, bank robbery, drug dealing, you know, and it became a corporation, a massive corporation ruled by four or five large cartels and probably another 10 smaller ones that were regional and that. You know, Mexico was tearing itself apart. We did a couple of investigations, nothing like, uh, you know, an actual drop of kidnapping uh, recovery. Yeah, nothing big. If you'd like to hear more about Jeff and Nick's escapades, you'll find them in their book, Vagabonds, Tourists in the Heart of Darkness. 
I'm Vanessa Kirby. Next time, we'll go deep undercover in sub-Saharan Africa with a fearless and faceless detective. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.